0: welcome to the garden basics with farmer fred podcast if you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information well you've come to the right spot it's bat day here on the garden basics podcast um we're talking about the flying mammal not the louisville slugger bats they're a good friend of every gardener and farmer Why's that? Because they're eating a lot of the flying pests that otherwise would be chowing down on your crops and flowers, or even you. We talk with noted bat expert, the University of California's Rachel Long. Did you ever see that instruction on a seed packet or garden calendar that tells you when to set out plants? Well, what exactly is setting out plants? America's favorite retired college horticultural professor, Debbie Flower, walks us through the process of acclimating those tender, young greenhouse or indoor raised seedlings to the harsh environment known as your garden. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast brought to you today by SmartPots. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. Farmers know their value. Gardeners with large parcels of land welcome their presence. And even backyard gardeners need an appreciation for those frequent visitors who can be found, usually just after sundown on warm evenings, flitting about the skies in a zigzag pattern. Of course, we're talking about bats. Bats are good for your garden. According to the National Wildlife Federation, the majority of bats in the United States are insectivores. They hunt at night, they eat flying insects such as mosquitoes, beetles, and moths, many of which are considered pests. Bats provide an important ecological service by eating tons of insects. There's more than 40 species of bats that live in the United States, and they're found throughout the U.S., Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Bats can be found in almost every type of habitat. They live in the deserts, the woodlands, suburban communities, caves, and cities. Bats make their homes in a variety of different structures. They can use trees, caves, cracks in buildings, bridges, even the attic of a house. The largest urban colony of bats in the United States lives under Austin, Texas's Congress Avenue Bridge during the summer. The Congress Avenue Bridge becomes a temporary home to something like 1.5 million Brazilian free-tailed bats. And not all bats eat insects. Some live on a diet of nectar and fruit. Bats that feed on nectar also serve as pollinators to nighttime blooming plants. And to attract these flying mammals, some flowering plants have evolved a musty or rotten perfume smell. And that smell is created by sulfur-containing compounds, which are uncommon in most floral aromas, but they've been found in the flowers of many plant species that specialize in bat pollination. And you know, even their excrement is popular. Bat guano is an organic fertilizer. So give a listen to this conversation we had a while back with University of California Farm Advisor Rachel Long about the benefits of attracting bats to farms and rural homeowners. And you're going to hear some tips on how backyard gardeners can encourage this nighttime visitor to help control the bad bug population. In an eight year study from 1997 to 2004, the University of California evaluated the use of 186 bat houses in rural areas of California's Central Valleys. Well, did you know that well-placed bat houses can attract bats to Central Valley farms? That was the conclusion, the results of the study headed up by Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor in Yolo County. And uh, Rachel, when it comes to bats, you are probably bat fan number one.
1: I know I've been uh, called Batwoman many times before, and I'm actually thrilled with the title. Thank you for for having me today.
0: It's amazing the insect population that can be controlled by bats and just the sheer numbers of insects that bats can control. Are they a benefit to a farmer?
1: bats are definitely a benefit to uh, to a farmer. Uh, bats consume their body weight in insects every night. So if you have a colony of, say, 500 bats on your farm, they'll eat the equivalent of a grocery bag full of insects every night. And many of these uh, insects that they're feeding on are agricultural pests. So the bats on a farm are definitely a huge benefit to a farmer.
0: Now, when it comes to bat houses, can you get bats to quit roosting inside a barn or a garage and get them out to a bat house?
1: So they bats are really true to their roost and they, they do like to go back to where they were born every year. And, uh, and they're just amazing, you know, the whole migration where they use actually the stars and the landscapes because they have good eyesight. In addition to echolocating um, they uh, they do use uh, visual cues and they also use the earth's magnetic field and so they they do come back to the same place where they were born every year, just just like salmon and uh, and so they they really it's really um very very difficult to uh, to actually you know. Um, get them to move into a house, a bat house. But if you do have a colony of bats where you don't want them, you can exclude them from that area. And then oftentimes they will move over into the new roost. And when I'm talking about excluding that if you have a colony of bats it's again mothers and their young and the mothers they have their young usually about uh, early June and it takes a good, um, a good six weeks for the young to fly and uh, so you don't want to do any exclusion during that time because otherwise you know if you, if you walled the uh, mothers out then the babies uh, would die so, um, so the best thing is, is when I talk, when I mention an exclusion what I'm referring to is, is like a little one way um gate like a like a doggy door or something like that where you put a flap over the area where you know the bats are coming in and out and then they can push their way out but they can't come back land and pick something up and get back in into that area because they have wings, they don't have hands, and so they can't they can't lift things. So if you do an exclusion, it's really important to use something that that, that bats can see light, so they know they know how to get out. So you want to use something like wedding veil material, or something, and you just drape it over that opening where where the bats are, where you don't want them, and then they'll push their way out. Um, And then uh, they can't get back in. And then oftentimes you can force them into using the bathhouse. But again, you don't want to do that exclusion when they have their pups because the pups can't fly. And then, of course, the mothers are frantically trying to get back to their young.
0: So when is a safe season then to do a permanent exclusionary uh, construction?
1: In the wintertime is the best time to permanently exclude them because they' they're pretty much gone in the winter time again they, most of them are migratory and they leave during the uh, during the winter time but it's always good still to try the exclusion and what I re- recommend is when people are doing an exclusion is to uh, is to basically again just put a cloth over that hole and use duct tape you know to tape on maybe two sides the top and then one side so the bats can push out but can't get back in and you want to leave that there for about a week and uh, because bats actually they can you know they can go into a dormant state particularly if it's nice and cool so so i would recommend you know, week 10 days just to make sure that all bats are not in there and then uh, and then you know, once once you know that they're all gone then uh, then you can just seal up that uh, that particular area whether it's with caulking or wood or something to keep them keep them out of that area
0: if a farmer sees bats on their property and he doesn't have bat houses where are they most likely coming from
1: bats can actually fly a long ways. They've been recorded to fly up to 30 miles away from their roost to forage for, for insects. And so, so they could be, if a, if a farmer in our area sees bats on their farm, they could be coming from a local barn. They could be coming from a, a tree hole where you might have a roost, you know, in a, in a big tree hole in a tree. Or they could be coming from like under the causeway uh, between Davis and Sacramento where they're roosting in the expansion joint so so they're very strong flyers and uh, and they're always going to where they think they can get a good meal and uh, and so um and so if you don't have a bat house you can still benefit uh, from from bats that are that are moving into the area from from around the region
0: are they attracted to water features
1: Water is very important for bats that bats do have to drink, and they drink on the wing just like swallows, so they swoop down and they scoop water into their mouth. And we find that uh, that if you do want to attract bats to to a farm using a, a bathhouse, then having water nearby is actually clearly a benefit because they do need water and they do need to drink several times a night.
0: What is considered nearby?
1: Nearby is within a quarter mile of water. So you want to make sure that you have uh, some sort of water source within a quarter mile, and that's going to increase the likelihood that you will have bats on your farm.
0: And how big should that water feature be? Is there a minimum size that they're attracted to?
1: They need they need some open pool that's probably at least ten feet long because what happens is they they're just like swallows if you've watched swallows dip in for a drink of, of water in a pond they just need some some room to swoop down and and uh, and drink water and uh, and come back up so. Um, they can't they don't have uh, feet like a bird. They have little, little teeny, teeny legs that are used for clinging on to uh, a surface upside down. So they can't land very easily and take off from the ground. So so that's why you need to have a big enough kind of area where they can swoop down and uh, and like an airplane doing a touch and go. And so they need a little bit of room for that. So I would say something that's at least 10 feet.
0: Are there plans online for constructing bad houses or these exclusionary tactics?
1: There are yeah the uh, and actually i do have a uh, a publication out there online uh through u c a n r which is about uh, bird bat and owl boxes. So, so there's information there which contains the uh, plans for building uh, bat houses. One of my favorite uh, bat houses, though, that uh, that I've seen on a farm is the uh, farmer just took a large piece of plywood and he put a three-quarter inch spacing all around the plywood, and then he just nailed it up to his barn. and uh, And he's got a lot of bats that are using that. I've seen other bat houses that are much more elaborate with multiple chambers you know maybe five or six different chambers and it definitely takes a lot of work to build something like that Um, so you can do something either simple or more complex and you can get you can actually buy bat houses online as well
0: now one thing we didn't touch on and we should is the fact that since bats can carry rabies these bat houses should probably be out of the traffic of people and pets
1: that's right, and uh, rabies is uh, it is a very it's a fatal disease, so definitely one that uh, that you don't want to get. And, ra- and bats carry rabies, and so you'll have maybe one in a thousand bats that could that could have rabies. Um, but rabies is completely preventable. Uh, basically, you need to make sure to vaccinate your pets, so your cats and your dogs have to be vaccinated, and uh, and then you want to make sure never to handle a bat with bare hands. And because uh, they, you know, if they bite you, then you then you can uh, get uh, infected with rabies. And then also, not placing the bat houses in in, in an area where you have lots of kids, that little kids or something that might pick up the uh, the a bat, or you know, if you have a cat or a dog in the area, because sometimes they do fall out of the out of the roost. So so you don't want to put it in the place where there is a lot of uh, uh, people traffic. It's uh, that's something to definitely think about.
0: So it's very important then to have your pets uh, vaccinated for rabies.
1: Yeah, rabies is is definitely preventable and uh, the main way that, you know, rabies is getting into the human population is through unvaccinated animals, so dogs or cats that uh, that that then come down with rabies and they'll transfer it, you know, with to uh to a person. So so really the key is uh, vaccinate your pets and never pick up a rabbit bat and it's just then rabies is preventable and you don't have to worry about it.
0: And again, if people want more information about this uh, conversation, the article that you have online, well-placed bat houses can attract mm-hmm. bats to Central Valley farms, it's available. You can just google the phrase well-placed bat houses and I'm mm-hmm. I'm sure if you put Rachel Long's name on there, it would pop right up mm-hmm. and you can read more about that and also you can read more about bats Uh, at the Pest Notes from the uh, University of California Integrated Pest Management System website. Rachel Long, always a pleasure talking with you. Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Yolo County Farm Advisor. Thanks for spending a few minutes with us telling us more about bats.
1: Well, thank you. It's just my pleasure. I always appreciate talking about uh, one of my favorite subjects, which which is bats, because they are so beneficial and feed on tons of insect pests. So thank you very much for having me.
0: I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this podcast. My criteria, though, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, and a product I would buy again. And you know who checks all those boxes? It's SmartPots. SmartPots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. SmartPots are sold around the world, and they're proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart pots come in a wide array of sizes and colors and can be reused year after year. Some models even have handles, and that makes them a lot easier to move around the yard. Because the fabric breathes, smart pots are better suited than plastic pots, especially for hot climates. That breathable fabric has other benefits too. Water drainage issues? Not with smart pots. Roots that go round and round, choking the root ball like they do in plastic pots? Doesn't happen with smart pots. These benefits will help you get a bigger, better plant than what you've gotten in the past with the same size plastic or other hard container. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers as well as select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com fred. And don't forget that slash fred part on that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your SmartPot order by using the coupon code FRED. F-R-E-D. Use it at checkout from the SmartPot store. Visit smartpots.com FRED for more information about the complete line of SmartPot's lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer Fred 10% discount. SmartPots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash fred. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode in the show notes. Maybe you'd rather read it than listen to it. That's not a problem. We have a complete transcript posted and you can find that link in the show notes or on our new homepage, gardenbasics.net. That's where you can find that link as well as all the previous episodes of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. There, you can leave a message or link up with our social media pages, including our YouTube video page. And at GardenBasics.net, click on the tab at the top of the page to read the Garden Basics Beyond Basics newsletter. And that usually has a bonus podcast attached to it. Plus, in the show notes, there are links to any products or books mentioned during the show and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can just listen to the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. Want to leave us a question? Again, check the links at GardenBasics.net. And when you click on any episode at gardenbasics.net, you're gonna find a link to Speakpipe, where you can leave us an audio question without making a phone call. Or go to them directly, speakpipe.com slash gardenbasics. You wanna call us? We have that number posted at gardenbasics.net. Spoiler alert, it's 916-292-8964. 916-292-8964. Email? Sure, send it along with your pictures to fred at farmerfred.com, or again, go to gardenbasics.net to get that link. And if you send us a question, be sure to tell us where you're gardening, because as I am fond of saying, all gardening is local. Find it all at gardenbasics.net. We like to answer your questions here on the Garden Basics podcast. Debbie Flower is here, our favorite retired college horticultural professor. And Debbie, we get an email question from a person who downloaded the Farmer Fred interactive calendar mm-hmm. for planting vegetables in the Sacramento Bay Area, lower foothills area of Northern California. And he loves the calendar. That's great. And he says, I hate to waste your time, but could you tell me what set out plants only means? Do you set out during the day only? What do you do? Yeah, on many calendars that you'll see uh, that are garden calendars, they'll have the phrase set out plants only hmm. And I complicated the answer for him. And you simplified the answer in our discussion here about this. Right. And I was talking about, well, yeah, usually set out means you have to acclimate the plant to the outdoor environment. And uh, what you just said is, yeah, you go ahead and plant them.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we can start plants in the garden from seed. We can just, you know, go out. It's done with peas, beans, corn. Our plants that we direct seed. Squash is the term. Yeah. Squash. Yes. You take the seed, and when the conditions are correct, soil's warm enough. There's light. the The soil has been worked, watered. Whatever you're going to do, you put the seed right in the ground, and you watch the plants come up from right there in the in the garden location where they're going to stay for the season and do their production. Other plants. We can start ahead of time, which we do from seed, but in a container and in a protected situation, maybe on a windowsill in the house, maybe in a greenhouse, something like that. And then we take them when conditions are right for planting, we take that already grown plant and put it in the garden. And that would be setting the plant out. It means that we don't start them directly from seed in the garden could we start them directly from seed in the garden? Absolutely. But the reason we don't, the reason we set out plants only, is they take a long time to grow from seed to tomato production, for instance. When we grew plants for sale at, at school, with when I did it with students, we estimated nine weeks from seed starting till we sold a seedling plant, which then someone could take home and set out in the garden. So if you just put the tomato seeds in the ground, when the temperatures are warm enough, the soil is warm enough, you have to wait nine weeks just to get about a six inch tall plant. And then you have to wait another 70 days maybe to get any kind of flowering and fruiting on that plant. So it saves us time. That's why we set the plants out in the garden. When
0: the weather is warmed, when nights maybe are over 50 degrees regularly and the soil temperature has warmed up into the 60s and 70s as opposed to the 50s. Yeah, exactly. And those seeds you talked about planting directly into the soil, that's usually done around
2: Mother's Day, usually when the soil has warmed up and the days are long. But they grow faster. Mm -hmm. In some cases, they don't transplant well. There are some plants you would never, I should never say never. Never say never. Never say never, right. But- Uh, Take a beet or a radish, for instance, something where we eat the swollen root. If you start that in a container and then you transplant it into the garden, you're gonna get a deformed radish or beet. So those are things that we would plant directly into the garden from seed. We would not start them and then set out a plant. So there are instances where we do not want to set out the plant. We do wanna start them directly from seed. And then there are instances where we wanna speed up the process and get the plant started before we want to get the plant started in a container and then plant it out. So
0: let's say you started your plants indoors Mm -hmm. and they've grown throughout February, March, and April, and you decide it's time to stick them out. You wouldn't take that plant from your dining room window and then go stick it out in the ground in one fell swoop. Wouldn't you
2: slowly acclimate it to the outdoor environment? Yes. If I'm starting indoors, I'm in One type of environment, which is a very evenly temperatured environment, low wind and lower light than outdoors. So I need to for that plant to acclimate to the conditions outside, which are going to be much greater fluctuation in day versus night temperature, much stronger light and much more wind, which uh, leads that plant to dry out very quickly.
0: So um, when I was growing tons and tons of tomato plants way back when and I had them in a greenhouse, before I would stick them in the ground, I would actually place them on the east side of the house so Mm -hmm. that they would be protected from the usual afternoon winds as well as the hot afternoon sun. Mm -hmm. And this is in April, and it can get pretty hot. Yes. And I'd usually only leave them out there on the first day for probably just – The middle of the day, I'd put them out about nine or 10 a.m. and bring them back in about four o'clock or so Mm -hmm. next day, expand that time frame a little bit more, a little bit more. And then by the end of the week, I would be putting them in the place where they would be growing permanently for at least one or two days, just pots sitting in that garden bed to get used to that environment. And then after another couple of days, I would plant them in the ground. So that that's a long process. That's like 10, 12
2: days. Exactly. It's called hardening off. Mm-hmm. And it is about a 10 to 12 day process. And it's necessary if you want your plants to survive. So all, in this process, the plants are giving you information, right? Right. If you, if you bring them in and there are spots on them, You maybe sunburned them, and maybe they weren't quite ready for that level of light. So then you have to repeat that location or take them back a step to a shadier location. The other thing that happens I find when I start to harden off plants is they dry out incredibly quickly. You have to check them. You don't want to do this on a day where you're going off on your long bicycle rides. You want to do it on a day where you can go out and check them and see if they need a drink. I'm missing my long bicycle <laughs> rides.
0: This is a tough time of the year for me. I want to take long bicycle rides, but I got to take care of the plants in the greenhouse
2: too. Plants take a lot of care. They yeah. really do. Yeah. I travel too much for my own pleasure to take care for plants. It takes, uh, uh, I haven't started any seeds yet and I, I wish I had. Yeah, I wanted because to- the
0: person next to you grows so many plants <laughs> that I'll just get some from him.
2: No, that's not why. I mean, okay. that's reassuring, but <laughs> I, I love, I love to grow things, and I haven't been able to start them from seed because I'm not there to check them. You have to. We've said this over and over again. You have to check your plants. Mm-hmm preferably every day yeah yeah exactly and especially if you're
1: starting
0: them from seed and they haven't germinated yet as you've often mentioned you have to keep that seed bed moist yes so that i mean you can automate it yes there are things that would allow a greenhouse to warm and cool uh there are watering systems misting systems that could work as well and so it it can be done i've done that before in the Mm -hmm. past because i'm not gonna say no to an April bike tour
2: of Hawaii, I might (laughs) want to go. And I have done that as well when I've needed to travel for long periods of time frequently. Um, And you always lose something. I always knew when I was going away for a couple of weeks or more that I would lose something, but I didn't lose everything. And so it was still a pleasure. Exactly. So set out plants, do it slowly, do it quickly. It
0: depends how you got your plants to be plants. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hope that helps. Debbie Flower, thanks for your help. Always a pleasure, Fred. Coming up in Friday's Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, Beyond the Basics, we pay a visit to the Luther Burbank Home and Gardens in Santa Rosa, California. That's where the famed horticulturist made his home for more than 50 years. It was here that he conducted plant breeding experiments that brought him world fame, During his career, Burbank introduced more than 800 new varieties of plants, including over 200 varieties of fruits, many vegetables, nuts and grains, and hundreds of ornamental flowers. It's all about the Luther Burbank Gardens, and it's in the edition of the newsletter that comes out Friday, April 1st. We conducted the interview more than a decade ago, but it has stood the test of time, and the docent who we interviewed there was a very knowledgeable, well-spoken, and a modest individual at the time he never told us about his achievements in the world of horticulture in fact many people there knew little about this gentleman until his obituary was published over eight years ago in friday's beyond the basics newsletter you'll find out not only a lot about luther burbank but also about the person we chatted with a docent by the name of jack hadley chances are you have one of his inventions in your garden shed or garage right now And right now you probably have one of Luther Burbank's horticultural inventions in your kitchen, maybe his russet potato. So take a stroll through the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, Beyond the Basics. Find a link in the podcast show notes or go to GardenBasics.net and click on the tab at the top of that page. Think of it as your garden resource that goes beyond the basics. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, and it's free. Please subscribe and share it with your gardening friends and family. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And thank you for listening. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's brought to you by SmartPots. Garden Basics is available wherever podcasts are handed out. And that includes Apple, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Google, Podcast Addict, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.